But I don't want that for women. I don't want us to have to become awful women to get away with equality, you know? So I think it is a constant banding together and fighting for respect. And you get so deep and crazy quick when you start talking about the differences of how the male and female world works. But I just live like a hardworking, independent person who was born without money and wanted to make a bunch of it, you know, and I just approach everything like that. And, you know, I joke with it. Men and women are confused because like we have so much in common. Men can't even have a flu without being total wimps and women have like such a strong pain threshold. But women could claim that they can't mud a drywall on a wall, but they can make a beautiful cake. And there's just so many things that really overlap and are just deemed masculine and feminine. And, It's really breaking all that down to a human level that maybe is the core of getting us the respect we deserve. And then there's also the reality that if the system isn't designed to let it happen, we are fighting uphill anyways. That was Nikki Lane. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male-dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. This week's guest has been dear to my heart ever since her debut, All or Nothing, came out in 2011. Not only is she a fantastic songwriter and performer, she is a genuine outlaw country shero, a rebellious tough girl with a tender heart, and as she dubbed herself on her last record in 2017, a highway queen who has logged countless miles as a touring musician and a woman who suffers no fools, but does it always with a smile. Nikki Lane grew up in South Carolina, dropped out of high school at 17, and moved to L.A., then New York, and then finally Nashville, both pursuing a now-thriving vintage clothing business called High Class Hillbilly and Life as a Musician, an entrepreneurial hard worker with a heart of gold. On her fourth album, Denim and Diamonds, Nikki teamed up with Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age as her producer and finally found the sound that she'd been striving for on an album that sees her reflecting on the roads that got her here, even if some of the roads are darker ones. I'm thrilled to welcome Nikki Lane as this week's Shiro in the spotlight. Nikki Lane, welcome to Shiro's. It's nice to be here and to get to hang out and talk to you again. Congratulations on Denim and Diamonds. We're long overdue to do this. It came out in September. Any thoughts now that you have a little bit of distance from when it was first released? You know, I was excited to go back in to like a post-pandemic tour environment. The record had taken such a long time just for me to feel like writing and going again. And so I think if you would have spoken to me in September, I was nervous to get back out there. I love all of the data and like the Tetris behind being a touring musician as far as money and stuff goes. And I wouldn't look at the ticket counts because I didn't want to psych myself out because I knew that they might be a little light because of the way venues are changing and the oversaturation of the market. But I just didn't want to get nervous. I just wanted to keep going. And I don't have an interest in learning how to produce per se. Maybe like creative director have like a idea over the concept behind a record. But sonically, I'm never going to be well-versed enough. So you are trusting of these producers and partners and the engineers they choose to define what you sound like. And that's Mm. nearly impossible because... 
the only real way to show you is if I could utilize all those tools. So as I've learned to play more diligently and write more true to myself, more so each record, I felt like I've gotten closer to that sound, but I'm always, you know, a little bit imposed by people's personal taste, the stuff they grew up listening to. It's just never going to be right on. And then I finished this record and it was just a weird experience for all of us, you know, in the pandemic, making a bubble, being the like 10 people we got to see every day and like being excited to see people outside of our homes and sharing some more vulnerable side of my past, you know, in this record. And I texted Josh Homme when we were done and I was like, well, I will maybe make more records, but this one did it. And he's like, yeah, what? And I'm like, this is like the one that sounds like me. We worked really hard. He was very adamant about pushing me forward to like say what I did and didn't like. And uh, I feel like this record's reflective of me. And even though I also feel that way about the younger versions, I feel like I've matured into the artist that represents me. I've checked that box off. And that took seeing it do well, you know, but also... I felt really satisfied with it when it was done. What an achievement and also so beautiful that for the album that feels the most personal, the most vulnerable, you kind of feel like it's higher stakes to get it sonically right. Yeah, but it almost came in the opposite direction that when I felt like he got me, I started showing him stuff because I knew it was called Denim and Diamonds before I had written the song, you know. I knew the record was going to be called Denim and I own the LLC, you know, before I had the song written. I knew That's it so I was you, Nikki. I know. <laughs> but I was reaching towards it, you know, before it was even done. But yeah. then old songs like Faded and Live in Love, they were 10 years old. And I really just felt safe to give them to people. You play Faded for someone and they go, oh, that's dark in there. And I'm like, oh, that's really me. And so that takes a, a trust that Carla Zara on drums, Michael Schumann on bass. It was just all really cool people. And I think they're cooler than me because they come from the rock world and that's what I listened to, but it wasn't how I sang, you know? And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll just show you my song. And then they're like, you're cool. And I'm like, oh, you think I'm cool? You know, and it's just fun. It's fun to still think people are cooler than you because I, I mean, I think I'm awesome, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, when you meet people that it just kind of, you know, I say I talk all the time, but I got to eat Thanksgiving dinner with Willie Nelson and I don't think anybody knows what my voice sounds like because I go, well, uh, Armadillo World Headquarters and then he'd go. And there wasn't no reason for Nikki Lane to say nothing, you know. <laughs> well, since you're talking about Faded, why don't we play a clip of that here? And do you want to set the song up for us? Tell us a little bit more in detail what this song is about. Why did people say it was dark? I think it just resonates with a very scary period of my life, of my childhood, where you go inward to avoid what's happening around you. And I found myself in different moments of my adult life slipping into that same headspace and realizing that those relationships and closeness wasn't really a safe space and that I was slipping away. I think it's called disassociation to protect myself. And as with most things that I've put out in records, I find that lots of people have had to use the same tools. And so it was important to me to be honest about some of the scary parts of my childhood that maybe would resonate for young people and adults alike now. I'm fading. 
faded. <laughs> Nikki Lane is here with us on Shiro's Radio. The most recent album is called Denim and Diamonds. It's album number four, her first in five years. And there's a quote here. Prior to this album, I was so focused on writing about life on the road that I just didn't have the headspace to write about the road that got me here. That's so profound. I felt like I was just getting really reflective. I hear that back and I'm like, wow. But I, you have to talk it out. You know, it stumbles out. And then somebody goes, that's how I feel. I left South Carolina and I complained about it forever. And while I was complaining about it, Greenville was actually popping off. Great restaurants, great food, great people. And I just kept complaining. And then I went home and I was like, dang, it's pretty cool, (laughs) you know? And so (laughs) I had to really pay attention to the fact that I have all these young people come and work for me and they don't know how to use a power drill. And I go, well, good Lord, there's one button, you know? But I realized that I'm very grateful that I grew up in a small town where It was like, well, go fetch it and do it yourself. And well, there's no one that's coming to do that specialty thing. And what do you mean you don't know how to make a toilet work or stop running? You know, all of those small town qualities, you know, they can lead to a closed-minded life where the city can scare you to death. But I was really naturally enthralled by big city and lights and possibility. But it's all those core lessons and work ethic and stuff that's helped me to really balance and be able to do it really well. You know, live a big dreaming life is that foundation. And so I'm quite grateful for all of the hardships and challenges. You know, when the record had come out, my granddad passed away, like the day Mm. of the release, like a couple days before, and they wanted me to potentially come home for the memorial. And I was struggling because I could have left New York. I was up there and gotten back in time for CBS Saturday. I mean, I was I was going to have to run myself ragged. And I was like, no. First of all, my granddad was kind of a jerk to me, which was why I was begrudging to him and became successful. And second of all, he missed all kinds of things for work. You know what I mean? Like, He would be proud of me for being able to get to do all this this week. He wouldn't want me to go stand out there. I went to see him before he passed because, frankly, I told him I wasn't going to have time. And it was something that was a difficult relationship growing out up but propelled me forward. And I feel quite settled with my decisions. And I know that he wouldn't be mad at me for making them because that's how I got this way. Yeah, that takes a certain level of maturity. Take stock of all that and see all of it as a gift. You know, I'm trying to think back to other times that I've talked to you before, and I don't really know how much I know about your background. I don't know if it's okay to go there um, since we're kind of touching a little bit about your childhood and what it was like when you were growing up and what role music had for you and where that came into the picture. I think as a child, I was like very creative. That's very natural, like in, in my family environment. But we were just lower income family and then a divided household with two single lower income families. So A lot of the creativity came for me later on, like especially to pursue a career because I was always looking for an employer, you know, just give me this solid footing. And so basically me and my little sister were born in a remote town in South Carolina between Greenville and Spartanburg. It's a very small town that just kind of falls in between a few highways. And my dad, I mean, frankly, was an abusive person when I was a child. And he's my close friend and I love him very much. And That's the first time I've ever said that on air or anywhere, but it's just the truth. And it created a lot of division in our household and a lot of fear. And a single mother who was, like, frankly, mimicking some of the damage she was receiving in the household. And it was 
a dysfunctional childhood, like many people have, you know. But my mom was very adamant about providing for me strong memories of like her giving me money for a field trip and not realizing that she was foregoing like lunch money for herself. And Mm. she was very into like trying to win things on the radio, winning $500 on the radio, you know, just like my mom is everybody's mom now, you know, and she just has a very strong spirit and worked really hard to be a single mother. And while we didn't have a functioning dad at times, we had a really fun, loving, wild father who to let me kill time would let me take the bulldozer and knock over trees in the yard or ride a horse that he had gotten us for Christmas or buy two like aluminum bodied patio chairs from the airline magazine and pull them behind a go-kart around the property with a ski rope. We could do anything we wanted to. And it was to make up for what he couldn't provide emotionally. And so it was a rival of my mom trying to hold it together and keep us from breaking our arms and my dad trying to prove he was the cooler of the two parents, you know, and that created a lot of fun and a lot of chaos. And I had two granddads. My grandmothers were awesome, but my granddads were largely influential in my life. One by my stubborn granddad who had passed away at the record coming out for doubting that we could do anything because he had been disappointed with my father. So it was like I was either going to be an engineer or I was going to be a failure. But that really motivated me. And then my mother's father, who is Cecil that I wrote about in Good Enough, which was my hero. When my dad didn't show up to Donuts for Dad as school function, my granddad was hiding behind a bush waiting to see if he would be good enough to go with me to get donuts. So you know, just a lot of stuff that people experience in all sorts of ways, just difficulty. And it made me talkative and get in trouble and confrontational and all that stuff carried well on into my 20s, gave me a kind of half good reputation in town for loud firings and, you know, just extremely defiant behavior. But it all went hand in hand with a really soft inside that had a need to be protected with a tough exterior. That's where the highway queen was just the girl that could survive this job. And they met in the middle, you know, musically and creatively with things like High Class Hillbilly, which were the safe and not so safe way to put out my craft. I used to say, if you don't like my record, it could hurt my feelings. But if you don't like my t-shirt, you're wrong. You know, so just always, (laughs) you know, just keeping all those things in balance. High class hillbilly, denim and diamonds, just always the juxtaposition of the two worlds meeting in the middle to become this hurricane of a person that I accidentally am and am, you know, frankly, quite done trying to tame because there's just nothing to be done about it, you know. I hope you never do. First of all, thank you so much for sharing all that. And Is that too heavy for the radio? <laughs> never too heavy for Shiro's, that's for sure. And I'm honored to be here for you. We've known each other quite a long time. Dozen, and, um, dozen years, as long as I've been doing it. I appreciate you so much, and I adore you, and thank you. And let's take a break from talking here and play some of Good Enough, since you mentioned that seems like a good place for that. Yeah, it's a song about vows and commitment that I have yet to find, but I think my grandparents fully represent it. Cecil was the first man to ever teach me patience was in the palm of my hand. He said, girl, work hard and just be good to the land. And you'll find love in all that glitters. Sometimes it's tiny as splinter. And 
That's good enough from the most recent Nikki Lane album called Denim and Diamonds. I'm so happy to have her here with us on Shiro's Radio. We were talking and getting some of your background. Was I just hearing that fashion and high-class hillbilly music, they sort of happen at the same time? They just always had to interact. I mean, definitely I didn't play music till I was 25. I moved Mm. to... L.A. when I was just shy of 19. I turned 19 a couple months later. I was a nanny, and I was Nicole Lane Frady, and I was considering opening a shoe line. I had started hand-painting vintage shoes and wanted to order some wholesale. I have one pair with my original Nikki Lane box over at the store on display, but I managed to get 500 pairs of shoes made with my name on them and subcontracted them out, and Nikki Lane, the name, was born. I knew when I moved to California, I either wanted to work at a record label or be a designer. And I think slowly I found my way. Like I said, it didn't occur to me to try something vulnerable like being the front woman of something until I was making really good money. I was a high school dropout. So once I got into a field where I was making, you know, 50, 60 grand in LA and then New York, I was like, oh, I can do something fun. And then I just threw it all sideways and got a small record deal and then had to lose all the good jobs and go back to being broke. And I would always say I'm like too smart to do that, you know. So High Class Hillbilly was born out of necessity. The first two years of playing music, I went to the Goodwill by the pound every morning. I could spend up to $50 on leather goods. I had to go home and polish my items and list them on Etsy and make a post on Facebook or something to promote that I had done it. You know, I was working for myself every day. And it's a disease of its own because now that is high-class hillbilly. It's stage-top marketplace. We do a project for a hotel called Countrypolitan. And then I still try to tour 100 shows a year. So it's a bug, you know, to work that hard. But they just kind of went hand in hand. You know, there were years where I played at Dan's Silverleaf in Denton, Texas, and I sold four CDs and $265 worth of boots. And, you know, and I ate off of boots that night, not music. And other cities where that would flip. And it was just about trusting both. And then things like the pandemic, where a lot of our friends really were suffering, everybody was. I felt really grateful that I had four jobs because two of them still worked, if not better. And so I've always prided myself on strong work ethic and being able to navigate hurdles and expecting hurdles to come. So it just has to go hand in hand. And you always do it with a smile, I have to say. You know, uh, like or a, crying. You just oh. see me. <laughs> what we don't see is the other side, yeah, right? I, I have yeah. a very jovial spirit, but that's why Instagram, I say the many moods of Nikki Lane. You know what I mean? To experience great happiness, there's probably great sadness somewhere there. So, mm. so you know, it gets hard to do a lot. And it seems like a curse sometimes. And then other times it feels like the, the most ultimate blessing, you know, so... I just take it all in stride. It's going to make a really good book one day. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. It's, yeah. There's just so many things that build all of these songs. It's like I'm in a really healthy, loving relationship now. And I told him the only thing I worry about is what am I going to write about if he didn't do anything wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely something that we haven't talked about is sexism and misogyny in music. And I would love to get your take. You are such a, again, appearances, such a strong woman. You give the impression that you take no shit. Mm -hmm. And I would look at that from the outside and maybe say like, oh, she probably doesn't have those kinds of issues or knows how to navigate them in her own way. They just get real... big real fast and then go away. And then if I'm doing my job, they don't repeat because you know not to. 
Right. So what has your journey been like? That's the thing is like, as much as I'm fully aware of how much it negatively impacts many women because of those tough raisings, you know, I have had to deal with less or if I've dealt with it, it's been a really good story. Like the incident that never was to be repeated. And I do have like a couple people that I have to keep an eye on as humans, but I joke, I don't have a lot of stalkers because I stalk back. And I call myself a mirror plus 20% because I I will give somebody whatever they're giving me. And so we were talking today about a business relationship that ended because they said apologize or else. And it was in a situation where I knew he was bluffing. And I said, well, it's going to be or else, you know. But I've had bad, I had a radio interaction, which I may have told you about a station up in the Northeast and, you know, how radio is. It's like if you're not there but on time, you're likely throwing off eight people's schedule, which I do appreciate. But you also are often told like, well, maybe we'll catch you next time you come through, you know. So we had gone really out of our way on a tour and I was admittedly very tired, which Brent Cobb was talking about when I chewed somebody out one time and he said, she means well, you know. And I was like, do I? You know what I mean? Because I meant well the first 10 minutes of that conversation and then I didn't mean well at all, you know. But we got there anyways on time and didn't get coffee on the way there because I wanted to be on time and nobody answered the phone. And when I got there, they were running behind with their production and they were not on top of it, but it was on air in one hour. And I didn't know because of a mistake with Joel that there were two bands playing. And so they got to spend the entire time sound checking. They did not know, so they weren't hurrying. And at time to go on, it was like, well, you know, tough shit for you. It was just bad production when it comes down to it. But I was like, fuck it. We'll catch you next time. And so it was a live audience. I knew I was being a little brat. So we got everybody, we got down to the van and the guy came back and he come running out and his hair's flying all in the wind and he goes, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, you've just been kind of dismissive since we got here. There was no coffee. There was no go get yourself some coffee. There was no, hi, there's another band playing. You know, you could have helped us out, but I think we're going to go antique today and I'll catch you next time. I think, you know, I was really mad because it was an oversight, but it was very impactful to us and the money Mm -hmm. and the time to get there all the way up there early. And he said, I'll tell you what, you're going to either go up there and go on stage for all these people. And now I'm not even sure he was talking to me as a woman, you know, (laughs) he was just like this, you know. But anyways, he said I could either go up there and get on stage or he could go on here and tell everybody not to buy my record and that it wasn't worth their money. And I said, oh, it was really bad. I asked him to suck my D. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have one. I think I have actually heard this story before. I said, you but- know what? Everything in the way, I looked at my band and Eric Whitman, he looked at the floor. He knew. It's just it comes out, you know. And I was like, oh, sir, everything in the way I was raised makes me want to tell you to suck my dick. And he said, excuse me? (laughs) And I said, yeah, you get on out of here. You go upstairs and tell the radio whatever you want. But you don't challenge me like that. I was courteous to you. You had an hour to sort this out. And I know you're going to take me off the radio. You know I have wonderful radio experiences. I have no reason to have a negative interaction. Because of my dominant nature, I don't catch a lot of I've definitely like backed my van and trailer like in a perfect circle, like around a man in the tire parking lot because I was trying to get radial tires and he was telling me why I should consider something else. And he was going to talk to my bandmate because maybe he'd understand it better. And I said, he don't even know how to drive this thing. And I backed it up in like a little hook around him (laughs) and drove off. But 
I know it's out there. And I say that when I meet women that are quieter and softer, I find myself really being their asshole for them. Mm. It was over for me a long time ago. I work now to be softer, to be more feminine, because my first job was at a car dealership. I worked in crazy restaurant environments. I tour around the world with boys and they learned real quick that I got bigger balls than them. You know what I mean? And just because of the way I was raised. And so it does happen less. And when it happens like innocently from a stranger or someone who doesn't know, they normally cower very quick because I try not to, but I immediately access all of that crazy shit I was raised in. But I don't want that for women. I don't want us to have to become awful women to get away with equality, you know? So I think it is a constant banding together and fighting for respect. And you get so deep and crazy quick when you start talking about the differences of how the male and female world works. But I just live like a hardworking, independent person who was born without money and wanted to make a bunch of it, you know, and I just approach everything like that. And, you know, I joke with it. Men and women are confused because like we have so much in common. Men can't even have a flu without being total wimps and women have like such a strong pain threshold. But women could claim that they can't mud a drywall on a wall, but they can make a beautiful cake. And there's just so many things that really overlap and are just deemed masculine and feminine. And it's really breaking all that down to a human level that maybe is the core of getting us the respect we deserve. And then there's also the reality that if the system isn't designed to let it happen, we're fighting uphill anyways with all issues. That's it. So well said. When you were talking, I was thinking about Born Tough. The lyrics say, well, my daddy always told me I was living in a man's world, but that don't mean there ain't room for a big hearted girl. So my mama took me picking, said that we could buy a set of tools so that I could build my own life and play by my own rules. Pretty I much love that it, right? so much. from Denim and Diamonds, and we have Nikki Lane here on Shiro's Radio. The reason why we played Born Tough is that you were born tough and how you handle sexism and misogyny when you encounter it. It's very inspiring, actually, to listen to you talk. I mean, and I feel it deeply, but the easiest way to let it go, like I said, was to overexpress a lot of the trauma and stuff when I was young. I would just tell people about it and it made it less mm. bad. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To hear it out loud. I was like, yeah, my dad dumped a dump truck of debris on my mom's boyfriend's house because he was mad. What? 
you know, that's real, like a whole dump truck, a debris. But the more you said it, the more it became like a movie that Matthew McConaughey needs to be in. You know, I still know a lot of my peers from my childhood who had similar trauma. We all bonded together real quick. We didn't know why, but a lot of those people really leaned into victim mentality. And I think if I let it be a knock in my potential that I was a girl, that I was a poor girl, that I was a poor girl who grew up in domestic violence, that I was a poor girl who talked too much... That probably would have been quite self-limiting, you know? I just used as much of this stuff as I could to my advantage. I was curious about your experience with your teams, with people you work with, male, female. Is that something that matters to you or doesn't matter to you? What's your vibe there? My core requirements for people in their work is more about accountability and strong work ethic. They kind of have to thrive in chaos. Male or female has never mattered to me, but it depends on the job, has always naturally been the same. So like almost every person that works for me is a girl in my real work life, but then on tour, they're all guys. And like I said, because of that baseline of respect and work ethic. I will judge whether or not we bring a very good player back, whether or not they offer to like drive because we don't have a bus yet. While we have a van, everyone needs to tie in. But I've just found that when I work with companies like my stagecoach job, which is again, all women, we also have tons of great guys on our team, but like it just naturally the six people that are in her orbit that make her world, they all are girls. We like it. But I definitely, when I talk to Stacey V, we're not like, and now it's important to kill the patriarchy by only hiring women. We're just like, no, these women are not lazy. They never complain. You know what I mean? Like just happens to be so. And I think that the great news is that that's possible now, because I know when we look at the last hundred years, you wouldn't have even had a bunch of women to choose from to promote to the leads of your top tier huge company. So we're in the right direction of uh, literally across the board, we're pushing all corners of the narrative of human existence, just letting everybody do their thing and not being limiting. But you see, you know, there is still a female urge that makes you want to procreate and could jeopardize your money. And I think that everything's nuanced. We have to set better standards because people don't try to take care of each other. So things that would be unspoken have to be really defined and changed in big companies to allow for the fact that so many people would want to prohibit uh, other individuals from being able to create families, make their own gender choices. I don't know why, but humans are so focused on other humans when it comes to limiting, but not when it comes to helping. It's bizarre. (laughs) I naturally try to take care of people around me, which is not fully like our government and our way of life here. We need more of you in the world, Nikki Lane. Before we wrap up, if I were to give you a Shiro's magic wand today, Nikki, and say you could change anything in music for women and non-binary folks, what would that be, if anything? Music is just one art outcome. I think that I would be more interested in giving young people the opportunity to understand the back ends of basic business, which would lend into being able to be a better musician. And I'm smart and I pay attention, but if I knew what kind of deals were good and bad, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble. And music is expression. Like if we're just talking about the music, there's no limitations. You know, all we got to do is figure out how to get instruments into children's hands at a young age so they can dive into it. But I wrote my first songs with a pencil on a steering wheel. So the music part is easy. It's once we want to like let people bring that to light, you know, we could work on all the sorts of individual ways to 
make it more fair and more tangible, but it's a business. You know, I understand why pop country radio wants to have everyone look and sing the same. They are controlling their asset. That's smart for them, you know, but I don't want to play into that world. So I just need for myself to be able to know the ways that I can navigate the approach I want to take. And if I could have known some of that information at a younger age and sex education, all of these things that become issues as adults when you're trying to turn your art into a career or when you're trying to navigate adulthood, we're not well-equipped, you know? And so I think it's just equipping young people with more information to navigate the real world later on so that if they do have that slight curse and blessing of pursuing art as the way they are sustainable as a human, that they're equipped with the tools to do so. And then you want to clear the path for them. But again, that's dreaming. The, the core thing there would be my magic wand that would just give us the spirit to think we could even take those things on at a young age. Who are your sheroes? Career-wise, I really want to be like Lucinda Williams, where there's a anonymity still in a lot of environments, but the queen of her world. There's women like Wanda Jackson, who I see, no matter how old she got, with just such a great spirit and an energy that shows me like how she carved out her path. But the number one is Loretta Lynn and, and I mean, Dolly Parton. But we know everybody picks Dolly because they're yeah. utilizing their growth and the, the net that they cast. I'm always like, talking about the net that I can throw and like sharing that with the people that I collaborate with to throw the bigger net. And Dolly and Loretta are the pillars of that community, right? But Loretta Lynn, as my personal goal, because I love to develop properties and space and the environment around me. So the Loretta Lynn campground and property that her family built, the fact that she created such yeah. a large family and family infrastructure, which takes care of her, but also she took care of them, a symbiotic relationship, and utilizing her fans to essentially pay for the growth of a beautiful idea that was shared, which is that property. The more events that they were able to hold, the more yeah. the event space and the property grew to accept more and more and more patrons. And now she basically has her own Graceland, you know, posthumously or whatever. It's really inspiring because not that I think about the Graceland part, I don't want anybody in this cool house, but just to create a space that's welcoming of all those people, friends that don't go out to meet fans. And it's truly because of anxiety. It's not because they don't love their fans, but I really feed off of it. So I spend a lot of time out there and I tell my fans, I know that, you know, they're one five hundredths of how I, or five hundred thousand of how I like live. And I, of course I would come out to meet them because I know that my job exists because of 700,000 employers basically saying that they want me to keep doing what I'm doing. Please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Nikki Lane, thank you for being with us. Could you choose a song off of Denim and Diamonds to take us out today? Well, if you're going to brag about being a defiant woman who does whatever she wants, let's listen to the title track, Denim and Diamonds. Well, here we go. Thanks once again to Nikki Lane. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.
Many thanks to Nikki Lane for joining us. Her fourth album, Denim and Diamonds, is out now on New West Records. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at SheRose Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.